Good morning, church. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? I have no light. (laughs) Cannot see. Today we'll be reading from the New Testament, uh, from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses... uh, Chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, and that's page 570 in the blue Bibles that are in the seat back in front of you. So I always want to remind you that that if you or anyone you know needs a Bible, please take the the blue Bible in front of your your seat uh, as our gift to you. So now hear the word of the Lord. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Thus says God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the revelation through your word over the last several months, Lord, that you are a God who um, has revealed yourself through scripture in your many attributes, God. And God, we thank you for all that this has taught us about you, all that um, the ways that we have seen you more clearly. And today, Lord, we just ask that you would help us to see in this last message on these attributes, God, that we are preaching, God, the the culmination of, of it all, God, just how it comes together. And we will once again stand amazed at the glory of our God. We thank you for that. God, I pray that you would... Assist us all as we hear your word, God. We know that as fallen men and fallen women, we are naturally resistant to your word, that we reject it and we rebel against it and we compromise it and we we make arguments against it, Lord. And I pray that all of those compromises, all of those rebellions, all of those uh, confused thoughts about your word would fall today as you give crystal clarity about what you have spoken. And Lord, I pray for my role in that. I pray that you would allow me to speak with clarity, that you would allow me to speak um, as as Peter commands, as the oracle of God, to speak for God as as one uh, appointed for this purpose, God, that I would never, uh, God, confuse, however, that you are God and I am just a vessel to speak your word. But help me to speak clearly and accurately this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You can be seated. 
Very good to see you all. You all look very, very stuffed this morning, and I hope that's true. I hope you're still working your way through those leftovers. Um, I want to uh, say a, a very warm welcome to my very good friend, Pastor Matt Cavazos. He had a day off and chose to join us today with his lovely wife, Gabby, and their children. So it's good to have you here, Matt. Thanks for being here. Um, back in July, uh, we began this series on the attributes of God. And we have gone through several of those and and talked about them. Uh, Pastor David and Gabriel and I have preached 15 messages uh, up till today examining God's incomprehensibility, His essential being, His triune nature, His supremacy, His sovereignty, His holiness, His omnipotence, His wisdom, His omniscience, His foreknowledge, His love, His mercy, His grace, His omnipresence, and His immutability. And I hope, my prayer is, that you have learned more about God than maybe you knew before, or you've considered things more deeply than you ever had before. But I want to let you know that there is still a whole lot that we could cover, a ton that we could cover. And though we've mentioned these things in passing, there are whole messages to be preached about God's eternity and God's infinity about God's invisibility and his transcendence. And we could go on and on to speak of his faithfulness and goodness at greater length. What more could we have said either of his patience or of his justice or his wrath? And yet today we're going to wrap up this series. We're trusting that you have been well outfitted to dig deeper, to think harder, and to contemplate more reverently what God has revealed about himself in the scriptures. Now, you should encounter truths about the attributes of God every single time you open the Bible to read it. It was given to you, the scriptures were given to you by God so that you might know Him rightly and so that you might believe in Him fully and so that you might trust Him alone for your salvation. And so when you're reading the scripture, you're not just checking off a box on your daily devotion sheet, you are getting the revelation of who God is and why that matters and how it applies to your life and how it can turn, how it can change everything. Your personal study of who God is, your intentional personal study of who God is, who God really is, should make the sermons that you listen to, the books that you read, the videos and podcasts you might listen to, come alive with his reality. But it starts with you being in the scriptures to hear who God really is as the Spirit speaks to your heart. And conversely, meditating on these things frequently should help you to be very quick to sniff out when someone talks about God in ways, tries to frame God or define God in ways that scriptures uh, deny. That the scriptures deny a God based on our own feelings, on our own preferences, on our own personal interpretations, isn't the true God at all. The only way you're going to know the true God is revealed right here in the 66 books of scripture. That's the only way you'll ever know him. So don't, this may sound odd to some of you, especially our guests to hear me say this, don't take my word for it. I'm going to do my very best to help you understand when the times that I get to occupy this pulpit, who God is, how, how what he has said to you is the most important thing. 
But open the Bible and find out for yourself, like the good Bereans of Acts 17, who this God really is. And though we could proceed with this series indefinitely, go on and on and on, and those of you who are here through Mark know that I'm not afraid to do that. We're choosing to conclude with just one more message. And perhaps, my my prayer is at least, that this message will be where everything that you've learned so far combines to complete a glorious picture of the perfection, the absolute perfection of our God. Now the central focus of almost everything that we have discussed so far in this series is how far above, how unlike us, and how transcendent God is. That he fills his creation and yet he stands outside of it and he cannot be contained by it. The proclamation of every attribute of God that we extracted from the scripture shows us how inferior to our creator we are. How, how inferior his creatures are to the one who created them. And all the church said, amen, we should all agree on that. This was clearly seen, this uniqueness of God was clearly seen as we, when we looked into his trinity, his triunity. There is no one else who exists as three persons and yet is one. We saw this in his power and in his wisdom. God is able to accomplish all that he determines to do, and he knows everything that can be known. He is unique in his immutability, that he never changes, and in his love, the way that it is an everlasting love. He is altogether singular in regards to his eternal existence. Nothing else has existed throughout all eternity, God alone. Having no beginning, having no end, in his omnipresence, he is present everywhere at all times. And so this leads Isaiah in chapter 40 of his book, verse 18, to say this in the words of God, To whom then will you liken God? And what likeness compare with him? There is none. He is altogether alone. He is solitary. He is the only one. God is immeasurably superior to all of his creation. And when you study who God essentially is, there's an interesting thing that happens. You're confronted by the reality that though he is utterly without fault, without flaw, there are certain things, brace yourselves, that God can't do. But it's those things that God can't do that are the most comforting things that we discover about him. What are the things God can't do and how on earth could they possibly reassure us? Well, Titus 1 uh, verse 2 tells us that God cannot lie. Now, how many of you would agree with me that that's some pretty good news? It seems that everyone else in our world has absolutely no difficulty lying to us with great regularity. But God not only will not lie by some moral resolve, God cannot lie. And therefore, we can trust everything he says. The Bible says that every word of the Lord proves true. Why? Because God can't lie. Everything is true that he has said. 
Therefore, we can trust everything he says. He affirms this himself in Numbers 23, 19. He says, I am uh, the Lord, I don't lie. He even says that he doesn't change his mind. And Pastor David taught us, for God to change it all is totally inconceivable. The Bible tells us that God doesn't sleep. He doesn't learn. He's never surprised. God has never once uttered in all eternity these words, I did not see that coming. We know that God can't be seen. He is invisible. And some of you might think that's just a very simple attribute. Study the invisibility of God. It will blow your mind, the depth of that reality. Twice the Apostle John tells us that no one has, it, has seen God at any time. He says it once in the Gospel of John, once in the, in his, in the letter, 1 John. God cannot be lonely. He's perfectly whole and complete within his Trinitarian existence. He doesn't need anybody. And knowing what God can't and won't do helps us very much to understand who he is And what he's like. And it shows us that we can be confident in him. We can be confident in God. He doesn't change. But today, set you up, because we're going to study one final attribute that has the potential to complicate all of our neatly packaged understanding of God. Today we're going to consider something that isn't often listed in lists of the attributes, the book that you'll, the books that you'll buy on the attributes of God. We're going to consider the con- the condescension of God. How many have ever have, have heard the term used of God, the condescension of God? Anyone? Okay, there's a few of you. The condescension of God. What do we mean when we say condescension. In our culture, most of the time, when someone says he was condescending, we mean that he he treated me with less dignity than I deserved. Something like that. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about condescension. As usual, I'll turn to the nineteen or the 1828 Noah Webster Dictionary, and he defined condescension at like this. I almost said condensation. That would be a totally different message. I don't know of an attribute called the condensation of God. But the condescension, he defined it like this. Voluntary descent from rank. Dignity or just claims. In other words, he's, he's not saying, this is mine, this is how you, you better, you better regard, regard me, treat me. He, he voluntarily comes away from that. His rank, his dignity is just claims. It's relinquishment of the strict right. What God is due, God often foregoes. Think about that for a minute. What what is God owed? Somebody tell me. What's God owed? Everything. Do we live in a world where everything is freely given to God? Not yet. Not yet. Relinquishment of strict rights, submission to inferiors in granting requests or performing acts which strict justice does not require. Now I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. But did Christ The day of his death, did he submit to inferiors? And did he do it to grant requests or perform acts which strict justice did not require? Did strict justice require that the perfect holy son of God die? Absolutely not. So I think with with Webster's 
definition here. We have a pretty good working understanding of what I'm going to be talking about when I talk about the condescension of God. God, though majestic, has always, always, from the time he first reveals himself to us, been a condescending God. After the fall in the garden, you will remember, God condescended. How? Well, he came near to his rebellious humanity when he should have destroyed them with the breath of his mouth. He he came near to them and he made them a promise in that moment of future grace. How more condescending could God be? He ratified his own promise by shedding the blood of an innocent animal to clothe their nakedness and their shame. After this, he provides rains and crops and children to ease their sorrow and pain in their sin. Was this consistent with the weight of God's decree that in the day that they ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would die? Yes. It was consistent. How? Because God, as we've told you over and over, cannot be other than God essentially is. He is just. Unwaveringly just. So what happens? They're evicted from their garden home. And they lived under the death penalty for the rest of their lives. But see, God can't be other than he is, so he was also merciful. And as I said, it was there in the garden that God's promise that the seed of the woman would one day crush the head of the serpent was made. And in God's provision to cover the undeserving couple, as we described, we see the first shining glimmers of the defining characteristic of the condescension of God, his generous grace. Grace can only be granted when the one who is greater condescends to the one who is lesser. As we keep turning pages in the Bible, we see God's condescension and his protection and his covenant with Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their descendants. We see it in God providing a lawgiver and an intercessor in Moses. We see God feeding them with manna from the sky and water from a rock. We see it in God fighting Israel's battles for them as they take possession of the promised land. We see it in the giving of the law, the priesthood, the sacrifices, the tabernacle, and the temple. We, we, sometimes we look at those Old Testament images and we say that's, that was a negative thing, the weight of the law and all these things. But listen, let me tell you what the purpose those things were given for. They were given so that God's chosen people, filthy as they were, could draw near to God so that they could hear his words and so that their many, many, many sins could be atoned for. His law, his priesthood, his tabernacle, his temple, they were all a matter of his condescension and his grace. We see his condescension further in the selection of David to be king over his people and in the covenantal promise that someone from his lineage would always rule over his people. We see it when God exiled his people for their unfaithfulness. But promised, as he promised in exile, he promised that he would visit them in the land of their exile. That's condescension. Along with the promise that he would one day bring them home again. Let's look at those couple of things again a little closer. The Davidic covenant 
contains so many shadows and promises of God's condescending redemptive plan with images of a coming messianic kingship and a coming reign of the Messiah that God himself would come to redeem his people. The exile likewise showed that when his people are the least deserving, that God still maintains a boundless reservoir of grace. He does not forget his people, but he pledges to come himself and rescue them. Wow. Wow, that ought to give us enough, if we believe that, to praise him for all eternity. Amen? How many of you are deserving of his condescension or his grace? Please be bold. Raise your hand. All of these promises and shadows of redemption culminated in a single night, which we sang of this morning, a night in Bethlehem outside Jerusalem, when Christ, the second person of the Trinity, fully God, was born of a woman. He didn't appear in the glory which he had existed for all eternity, but he appeared as a crying, squirming, infant child. By all appearances, he was as normal as any other baby boy. And this is what Paul was referring to in our text from Philippians this morning when he said, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. There is the Bible's definition of the condescension of God. In order to save his chosen people, not just ethnic Jews, but all who would believe in his name from every race, tribe, tongue, and nation on the earth, he took on human flesh, and he existed in time as opposed to eternity with two perfect and complete natures, divine and human, which theologians, if you want to study that more, call the hypostatic union. And he did this, as the London Baptist Confession of 1689 tells us, he did this without converting one into the other. In other words, his humanity didn't, didn't become divinity, his divinity didn't come, become uh, humanity, or mixing them together to produce a different or blended nature, this kind of you know uh, mixed-up kind of God-man type of thing. In this way, because he came in perfect, full humanity, he would fulfill perfectly again, as a man, all of the requirements of God's law in order that he might impute righteousness to all who would believe in him. And this is an unexpected and incomprehensible act of uh, condescension on the part of a perfectly holy, forever worshipped, eternally existing, almighty God. Think about that. What kind of a translation has to take place for the eternal God to become a normal infant baby? He not only pitied us from afar, Paul tells us, but he became one of us and he dwelt among us. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh, the Word being Jesus, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace, full of truth. While the details of His appearance 
caught everyone by surprise. It had been promised throughout the entire Old Testament. It was right there in front of them. Christ was the seed of the woman that crushes the head of the serpent, Genesis 3.15. He was the prophet that Moses predicted would come, who must be revered, Deuteronomy 18.15-19. He was the ruler who would sit forever upon David's throne, 2 Samuel 7.12-13. He was the suffering servant, Isaiah said, would be pierced, for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, Isaiah 53, 1 through 5. He was the rock Daniel saw destroy the kingdoms of the world, a stone which becomes a mountain filling the earth, Daniel 2, 34 and 35. And we have spent weeks seeing that God is above and beyond anything we could attain or even imagine. There is no comparison between us and Him. God is not just like us, only a little bit better. We are not like God, only a little bit worse. He is infinitely above us. And yet, and yet, in the glory of His eternal plan, He didn't save us by magically transforming us to become like Him, but by Himself becoming fully in the likeness of us. That is breathtaking to me. This is what Paul means when he says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He had equality with God. He was God. He was in no form lesser than the Father and the Holy Spirit. And yet he loosened his grip on those things so that he might be He might become one of us. He was robed in transplendent glory and he dwelt in unapproachable light. And yet for our sakes, he became a baby. A baby who needed to be nursed. A baby who needed to be soothed. A baby who needed to be comforted. Listen to this. Jesus The second person of the Trinity, the divine, eternal Son of God, had to have his diapers changed. Just think about that. I'm not being irreverent. That's that's what we're talking about when we talk about the humanity of Christ. There was not a single instant of his lifetime, however, even in the manger in Bethlehem, that he was not fully God. This reality, it was the most difficult riddle for the early theologians of the church to deal with. They suggested that Jesus was either God's best creation, the first overall creation, or that he was some kind of hybrid, more 50% God, 50% man, and not indeed, in fact, as the scriptures declare, that he was 100% God, fully God, and fully man. Now, I'm not suggesting that this reality is easy to grasp. I don't expect any of you to go say, oh, okay, 100% God. Okay, got it. I'm not expecting anybody to do that. But it is what the scripture teaches. And so to think otherwise, to try to recreate the Son of God in a way that fits your limited understanding is to think in a sub-Christian way. A scholar in the very early days of the church named Hilary of Poitiers pinpointed our problem perfectly. 
in these disputes with other theologians who were trying to recreate Jesus according to their own understanding. He said that just because we are incapable of understanding something perfectly doesn't make it untrue. How many of you guys have a perfect grasp on the Trinity? Raise your hand. How many of you guys have a perfect understanding, no flaws whatsoever on a God who had absolutely no beginning? We believe those things because the Bible reveals them. We don't have to understand them perfectly, right? Listen to what Hillary said. He said, unbelief is the result of incapacity engaged in argument. Isn't that good? Read it again. Unbelief is the result of incapacity engaged in argument. When we argument, when we argue from the limitation of what we know, we will always result in our unbelief of what is true. The fullness of God's condescension to save us is seen in the fact that Jesus, as a man, quite often did what we are told in the scriptures, God can't do. And what are we to do with that? Now, I'm not suggesting that Jesus would lie or change his mind and his human nature. I'm not suggesting that at all. But there were elements of his divine nature that he laid aside in order to embrace Full humanity. Let me give you some examples of this. Psalm 121 verse 4 might be familiar to some of you. Behold, he who keeps Israel will never slumber nor sleep. God, according to the psalmist, does not sleep. But surely, we can't imagine the infant Jesus not sleeping. Mary would have gone nuts. And what was Jesus doing in the boat when the storm overtook the disciples and frightened them so? Mark 4.38 tells us, but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. What's happening here? Was he not fully God? Had Jesus not slept, consider this, how could he have ever related to your humanity in your limited energy reserves? How could he have ever had mercy and compassion on you when you are wiped out? In what sense could he have ever been regarded as human by any of us had he not slept? But before you lean too hard into the humanity of Christ, don't forget that the recently awakened Jesus stood up in the boat and commanded the storm to be Silent. And guess what? The storm obeyed. Something that only God could do. What a picture of humanity and divinity working together in harmony. The God who sleeps in a boat still commands storms. We've learned in studying God's omniscience that God already knows everything and therefore has never needed to learn or relearn anything. But twice in 13 short verses, Luke tells us in chapter 2 of his book that the child Jesus grew and was filled with wisdom and that he increased in wisdom. What is Luke telling us? Jesus, the man, had to learn some things. We see also that Jesus in his humanity did not know some things. 
Remember when he was asked about the exact time of his prophecies in Matthew 24, Mark Mark 13, Luke 21, when they would take place, remember what he said? But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Who does no one include? Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Does this mean that something in his humanity made Jesus not omniscient? No. He was acting in his humanity. He condescended to live his life as a man just as we must. He trusted God. He determined to trust God with the future, even having no complete knowledge of it all. Remember, however, that this God, man, who did not know the the exact moment of the end, what did he know? Well, he knew what the Pharisees were thinking. He read their minds. He knew that the woman at the well had had five husbands. His humanity never canceled his divinity. But sometimes we see him operating in his humanity and not his divinity. If there's one thing in the Bible that that it's crystal clear about, it's that God cannot be made to suffer and he can never die. The Bible says he is from everlasting to everlasting. And yet Paul says in verse 8 of our text this morning, and being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient. How obedient? To the point of death. Even death on a cross. In the apex of Christ's condescension, he not only lived the perfect life that we could never duplicate, but he also took upon himself all the guilt and shame of all of our sinful words, all of our sinful thoughts, all of our sinful deeds, though he was innocent. He bore our sin to the cross and died the death that you and I deserve to die. And he did this so that you and I might live and not die. This is perfectly summed up in one verse of scripture, 2 Corinthians 5.21, which we refer to often. For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What does this simple verse mean? What does it tell us about the condescension of God? Let's break it down. For our sake, Jesus died for no lesser and no alternative purpose other than the salvation of his elect people. God made him to be sin who knew no sin. What is that telling us about condescension? The eternally existing, angelically praised, spotless Lamb of God was blackened on the cross with all of my anger, all of my lust, all of my fear, all of my selfishness. And to what purpose? So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. God laid all the guilt of our wickedness upon Christ so that he could lay all of Christ's righteousness upon all who would believe in his saving work. The greatest transaction in human history facilitated by the condescension of a holy God. 
And this is the depth of God's condescension, that he might remain absolutely just, never for once relaxing one holy requirement of his law. And yet, in placing that punishment on Christ and not on us, he is able to receive unworthy sinners into his mercy and grace, that we might have fellowship with him, that he might dwell among us and we might know him. And what is the reward of Christ's obedience to the point of death? What is the reward of all of his suffering? You are. You are his reward. He died so that he might have a people for his own possession. He died so that he might have a body to represent him in the world. He died that he might have a bride to share in the glories of heavenly joy throughout the ages of eternity. But that is not all of his reward. This is how Paul finishes off his paragraph in Philippians 2. Therefore God, because of his obedience, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ's reward for his suffering is a people, yes, but it is to be glorified. It is to be praised. In the last day, no homage will be withheld from him. Every knee will bow in recognition of his blessed majesty. The the willing knee and the unwilling knee will bow before him in that day. Every tongue of every saint and of every sinner will openly declare his worthiness, his beauty, his glory, his lordship, and his dominion. And that is his reward. He condescended for our sakes, and his condescension has won for him incalculable honor and glory. He is now seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for all his people, and wielding all authority in heaven and on earth. Of the increase of his government and of peace, Isaiah tells us, there will be no end. And may his name be forever praised that he receives the first fruits of his reward in his church, which he has purchased. Will you stand with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you and repent with broken hearts. Because the glory of your condescension has been taken for granted by us. God, we so flippantly say that Jesus died for our sins. The most true statement that could be made. But God, help us to remember what it took for you to die for our sins. For you to lay aside your glory. For you to be, God, smeared with all the muck of my life, God. 
punishment placed upon you that you did not deserve so that you could release us from a penalty that we not only deserve, but we we are more indebted to that penalty every day outside of you. And so, Lord, help us to see the glory of your condescension, Lord, to be amazed by it, to be grateful for it, God, and to participate in the reward, not at the last day. Don't let anybody in here wait till the last day to bend their knee and use their tongue to bring you praise, God. But let it be today, God. Let us be a people who shout forth your praise, who proclaim your goodness in all the earth. And God, we thank you for the inexpressible gift of your son, his sacrifice, his condescension that has made you and I one. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our communion uh, workers come and help us serve at the table today. Um, we are about to receive one of the great privileges of the church, which is the Lord's Supper. And um, we, uh, as we always do, we want to remind you this is exclusively for those who have placed their trust in Christ, who have recognized his, the saving nature of his condescension and have placed their trust in him, believing in him and him alone for their salvation. And, and for those of you who fit that description, come joyfully. Sometimes we make this thing so somber, and I've never understood that. We ought to come dancing down those aisles to receive the, the, the Lord's Supper, this promise of grace and forgiveness, this promise of new life in Christ, the promise that his condescension was fully effective. And because of that, you and I are saved. Amen? For the rest of you, there are some here, and I know that you're here, that have not placed your trust in Christ. You either are completely rejecting him or you're just kind of kicking the tires and you don't know if there's anything to all this. I would just ask you to remain where your seat is. Not because we have any heart to deny you something from the rest of us. It's because this means something. And it means nothing to you if you have not placed your trust in Christ. The Bible places a very severe warning. It says to, to eat and drink from this table unworthily is to eat and drink condemnation. And we wouldn't want that for you at all. But what we do want for you is for you to trust Jesus for your salvation, to see the beauty of what he did, as I described today, to save you and to put your, your trust in him, to believe in him, to follow him, to obey him, to become his disciple. And if you'd like to ask more questions about that, please, by all means, see Pastor David today, see myself, see Gabriel, and we would love to walk you through what that looks like so that you can join with the saints in, in this and every other celebration. In fact, the ultimate celebration that will take around the, that will take place around the Lord's table in heaven, we want you to be there. And so, but if you're not there yet, don't come. It, it can only uh, lead to bad things. So, we're going to ask you now, if you would, to come and receive these elements. If you are a believer, take them back to your seat, and we'll take them together in just a moment. Paul writes these words to us in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning of verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Now let's give thanks. Lord, we just express to you our amazement again at what you've done. We thank you that, God, you are not the image that is now portrayed on crucifixes all over the world, beaten bloody on a cross, but you are enrobed again in majesty, seated beside your Father, making intercession for us, having all power and authority given to you, Ruling the world, the world as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and the first and the, and the last. God, we thank you for this, and we know, Lord God, that that this position was given to you because of your obedience—not obedience in the simplest form, but in the most significant obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross—a shameless or shameful death, God, that you did not deserve, and yet you took it for us so that you could bestow us in your righteousness. And we thank you for that, God. You are a good God, and may we never forget it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'd place your hands in a, in a receiving position, I want to read this great benediction from the book of Hebrews to you. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You are dismissed.